0: How did you think of that? With Temple Grandin.
1: I'm your co-host, Sherry Quinn. We seek out innovators and curious minds who approach challenges with their own unique abilities, such as the way Temple Grandin uses visual thinking to approach problems. Joining us is aerospace engineer and inventor, Walter Holmans.
2: It's wonderful to talk to you all.
1: Yeah, (laughs) OK. His invention, the light band separation system, has been used in more than 50 satellite missions.
0: You look at something like making the Mars rover, a look like Walter's business. Well, if that, that thing that Walter makes doesn't work, your whole mission is ruined.
1: And it's mechanical, very
0: clever mechanical engineering. There's not enough credit given to that.
1: The light band is a more efficient way of separating satellites from rockets than traditional ones. He founded the company Planetary Systems Incorporated in 1998 and sold it in 2021 in a multi-million dollar deal with Rocket Lab. Holmans took a methodical, hands-on approach to his invention and even drew inspiration from car trunk latches. Yes, a latch system that has lasted the test of time. His team of about a dozen engineers scrutinized and tested every feature of every part for years until the highest reliability in the industry was won. Holman's and Grandin share a tendency towards visual thinking. They walk us through how they explore challenges and design new solutions, the importance of learning from other engineers and scientists, and what it takes to become a true innovator.
0: I've been reading all your web page stuff and really, really interesting. yeah. And right now I'm writing a book on visual thinking and how um, it doesn't get enough credit in design work for the people who are really good at design who are not super good at math, which I guess you were one of those.
2: That's correct. My, my strong suit was uh, my development of uh, the capacity to create accurate models of things in my head.
0: That, okay, well that's the same thing I do. Yeah. You, you build it in your head. I would make wood things in the shop but then when I went over to steel and concrete, I had to learn to do the shop in my head.
2: Right. I, I remember um, when I was in school, we took a, a course called Mechanics of Materials. And it explains how I-beams work. Yeah. Like why are I-beams I-beams work? Okay. What's good about round tubes and stuff like that? And, okay. And um, a couple of years later, when I integrated that uh, knowledge with Oh, the work had been doing on spacecraft, a, a light went off. I got to the point where I could look at things and look at all the features of, say, a, a, a standard bridge or an overpass bridge, and I could yeah. see... Seeing
0: them, I'm seeing them right now, an overpass bridge.
2: Yeah, and, and so I would see, I would understand very quickly why the engineers made the choice that they did. And then I started to look at bridges and buildings, and then I started to look at cars. Cars, I didn't really understand very well because I came from an aerospace background. But then, you know, the more the more I compared and contrasted the reliability of cars, which is outstanding, to the reliability of space systems, which is atrocious. Like here, we use the best metals, we get a lot of money, we spend a lot of time thinking about it, and like, why can't we be as good as cars? And then I realized, of course, that the car people have spent vastly more time than we have. Like they they build more in an hour than we build in the in in the uh, history of aerospace.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah.
2: So then I started to look at things like car latches and I started to see like they make this stuff out of what I used to think was junk. They'll stamp mm-hmm. parts out of, out of sheet metal and form it and cover it with grease. And I was like, oh, this is beneath me. And then I realized the opposite was true. They had chosen every feature uh, with, with exceptional precision and understanding and thoroughness because they had to. And then I started to design that way. Like my industry loves redundancy mm. and cars don't have redundancy whatsoever. No, yeah. and, and, and my industry is dismissive in cases of preloading the junctions. Like when you put two parts together, you have a screw between the two and you tighten that screw and that compresses the two parts so that the screw never sees load, just the material sees load. It never does this. It never gaps. Yeah. But yeah. Some of my competitors let their stuff gap. And and when you do that, it's a rattling car, and nobody likes a rattling car because it's about to fall apart. I started to learn like the commandments from God. The 11th commandment was, "You shall preload all junctions, whether they're uh, static or dynamic junctions." And you know, that, so then when I would when I would talk to people about this preload thing, and they and they either didn't understand it fully or they were prepared to be dismissive of it because it was a very difficult thing to do. I I asked them like, what in your car is not preloaded to an adjoining structure? And the only answer is the the oil and the gasoline, but they're contained in a vessel. The the gravity will preload it, but it will slosh and move. That's right. And and so I was like, even you are preloaded into a car by virtue of your mass and by virtue of the seatbelt the things that are preloaded the most poorly are, are people, oil, and petroleum. A general rule, like I was talking to a junior engineer today, and and we, we need to to select some shims. And we use a, a company called McMaster Car. McMastercar.com, like look that up because they've got every screw, every oh, okay. tool. It's a candy store for mechanical engineers. Yeah. Um, and I told them, if if you're designing a mechanism and that's where you would get shims and bearings and screws and all the other things, if you can't find it in there as, as a standard part, then you're wrong. Because if they haven't invented it already, it's very unlikely that, that you somehow saw something that engineers for the past five centuries haven't seen. A good bit of encyclopedic knowledge.
1: In Holman's facility, the engineers test their products in settings that mimic outer space, such as vacuum chambers that shock and subject them to extreme heat and cold.
2: If, if it's going to break, we want it to happen here, That's right. Yeah, because we can't fix it otherwise. So it's all about like, trying to understand the um, liability.
1: He's walking us through his facility, explaining his designs, like he's in a high-tech toy factory for engineers. Here, the products are designed for use in the harsh environments of outer space, or the ocean. In addition to his satellite separation systems, Holmans has also co-designed a robotic sailboat with a long-duration remote water sensing system. One of its application goals is to help support the shellfish industry.
2: So there's the propeller. These are the propellers from those quadcopters. It turns out they're the most efficient to propel the boat. This is a keel, right? So this is a this is the blade from a windsurfer, and when you're operating in the Chesapeake, it's only a couple feet deep, and right. so when it hits when it hits the uh, the ground, we want it to let go. So I built yep. in a mechanism that'll let it go either way. So it's a cam and a cam follower and a spring that adjusts its tendency to disengage, right? Mm-hmm. And I got that idea. Originally from, you, you know, the Bayou Tapestry, William the Conqueror. So, 1066, he goes to kick ass from France to England, establishes his dynasty, and, it, and his wife and the other folks create a tapestry memorializing their, uh, their glory, their victory. And they had ships in there. So, they brought the horses from France to the shores of England and they just beached them, right? And normally, this would just wreck a rudder and a keel. And mm-hmm. they did what I did which is they put the rudders on the outside and the keel on the outside. And if, it, if you run aground, they would just fold up. And I, saw, you know, I, was, I was in my mom's living room a couple of years ago, and I looked at this, you know, she had a duplicate of the a Bayou Tapestry. And I was like, oh, my heavens, like, you know, a thousand years ago they were using folding keels and rudder because it's, it's uh, shallow waterways. And if you want to get a couple of tons of grain from one place to the other, there's not a lot of docks in a lot of these places. Uh, so they had to have folding keels and rudders. So I started off just knowing that I had to solve this problem of running aground. Yeah. So it was always in my mind. When you look at old drawings, you tend to dismiss them as like, oh, those people really didn't know what they're doing. The opposite is, is of course true. They were doing extraordinary work with, with some very simple methodologies and designs. And so I, I got to tap into the experience of, of engineers for, for like millennia, because they've been dealing with the problems that I've been dealing with far longer.
1: Solve the problem. Yeah. Holmans took a simple approach based on a simple design to develop one of the most successful satellite separation systems in the United States.
2: We bought some aftermarket trunk latches and reverse engineered them because we want to do what a trunk does. A trunk has some soft rubber around the perimeter of the lid And we did the same thing so that when we close it, it takes up the variations and tolerances and provides a very soft cushion, which makes a very good perimeter seal, which drives up the stiffness, which which is why our trunks don't rattle along as as we drive down a bad road. And then when we pull a string, the trunk latch operates and the trunk opens. And the trunk opening is what we want to do. And so we could apply all these aerospace solutions, but then we look at cars and like there's no there's no argument. They they know better about this problem. It's it's almost a perfect analog. I want a door to open reliably from a remote location. What you know, how do they hold the door shut? That's what we did. Yep. I mean it was it was not easy because we didn't, we still didn't understand that they spent you know, the past 90 years making ever, ever better trunk latches. Well, it's really nice to be inventive, uh, part of the creative part is, is to tap into that encyclopedic knowledge and, and to be respectful of the idea that if there's a, if there's a similar idea, take advantage of it and, and copy it. And so I'm always looking at mechanisms because if I see a mechanism I don't understand, like that just draws me in. I love figuring stuff out immediately and it can get a little boring, but if there's a mechanism I see, I don't know how it works. You know, I go after it. If I've got a new idea, the first place I look is the closest, nearest design. And, and in the modern world, there's the probability that I'm having to come up with a brand new concept is very, very low. So a lot of my work is just tapping into the encyclopedic understanding that I've so far developed to just reapply it.
0: You know, there's certain things it seems in designing things where there's certain kind of design principles that are kind of the same. Because one thing I've always did to go on a job, I'd go on a remodel job at a plant, and I could go look at the room full of equipment and go oh, this tear this junk out, gotta keep this. And I could actually see it torn out. Stuff yeah. I had to keep, the stuff I, I needed to get rid of. And I found that for most of the plant managers, they just absolutely couldn't do this. Went over your website. I looked at a whole bunch of your videos. And I looked at your list of your clients. And I'm going, wow. You went into a very specialized business coming from definitely not a stellar academic background. Yeah. So I'm really interested in in sort of how you get there, because i worked with a lot of smart kids on big meatpacking plant projects, and their welding class in school saved them. They just started working in construction. There's a guy right now doing some work on on some of our buildings. Um, He's a carpenter, and he does like really brilliant engineering things. He's got no training. You know, it's got to be visual thinking. See, what's happening now, these kids are ending up getting a special ed label, and they sort of become their label, and they're ending up in the basement playing video games, when they ought to be like you doing something
2: really cool. Amen to that. I mean, I certainly was incorrigible, dismissive of of the need for academic rigor. It was boring as hell. And I wanted to create and design and and do great stuff. And when it comes to rocket science, you really do need to spend a couple of years uh, with your head in the books and so on.
0: Yeah.
2: So I scraped by. And then when I got to My first job out out of undergraduate, I realized how um, relatively poorly I was prepared. And I I wish I'd paid attention because they would ask me.
0: paid a little more attention to the engineering.
2: Yeah, they started asking me, will the satellite fall apart or not? And I was like, "Uh Mm uh-oh. So at that point, of course, I cursed myself. And then I hit the books. And then I got the bright idea to get a graduate degree, which is um, how I ended up in, in, in Utah. Yeah. And then after the, the, the graduate school was much, much more difficult than I was used to because you've got the best students and the standards are much higher than undergraduate. So then I went back to the same job and then it was easy for me to, I got a lot of my work done in, in the space sciences. So when it came to designing a satellite, I didn't look at a solar array and say, "I don't know what the heck that is." I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna listen. I'm gonna do what they tell me to put it on the rocket. But I'm not gonna get into the specific design of the solar array. But after graduate school, when I could, can when I could calculate like how much power you get from different solar cells and different areas and different orientations, that allowed me to look at the designs that we had and say, "This is bunk. It's it's not." We would design. A, a spacecraft. One was called TSX Five, a, a military experimental spacecraft, and and um, they needed about a uh, you know, hundred watts of power, which was a lot back then. This is twenty five yes. years ago, and so we deployed out like seven square meters of solar cells. It was like a fly with the two uh, wings being uh, solar cells. And then I realized later if we if we'd use gallium arsenide solar cells, which are twice as efficient. Um, all we'd need is one square meter pointed about one axis, using a, a simple motor, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" So I could I could start to look at spacecraft much more holistically and make well, that's design.
0: A visual thinker that um, I I can I start seeing that now. I don't know what the satellite looks like, so I'm kind of managing a fanciful fly looking like thing with solar panel wings, but I can very sure. much understand the concept that. Um, Per square inch or square centimeter, whether you want to go metric, of solar panel gets a certain amount of power. And how many square, how many square centimeters of solar panel do I need? See, right. And, and that math's probably pretty straightforward. See, I'd understand that.
2: Right. The downside to being a really good student. Let's say I was, uh, in spite of being creative, very good at saying, "Hold on, I'm just going to sit down, get an A plus in this stuff." If I had done that, then I would have been hired by Lockheed or Boeing, and I would have been put in charge of um, like a turbine, a liquid oxygen turbine, turbo pump or something like that.
0: That A small piece of equipment.
2: yeah, Yeah, and I would get very, very good at that. And I would be deprived of the big picture, but because my grades sucked and because I ended up interviewing for a company that was just wanted worker bees to follow orders. They really didn't want creative people. They wanted people that were smart enough to put a satellite together. And I show up and they get a dummy who's got nowhere else to go but kind of the big picture stuff. So again, I I started becoming fairly dependent on on the one skill that that stood out really well because I could understand things three dimensionally. I didn't know nobody else was in, the, in in this way of thinking. And, and many people weren't uh, terribly passionate about it, but I really had no choice at that point. And, and so I started looking at things and using my kind of crutch in understanding things to, to get through to the, to the truth of what I was really looking at. So that suited me really well. I'm, I'm fairly good at, at the big picture and how you start from a, a small thing and you end up with a big outcome.
0: satellites. Why were they unreliable?
2: The very simple reason is we do it so infrequently that the engineers learn very, very slowly what might go wrong. It's especially difficult to go and get a satellite that's broken and take it apart to find out why exactly it went wrong. They, of course, know to instrument rockets and satellites for exactly this kind of an outcome. So they're much better at it now. The big thing we've learned is to at least instrument the satellites enough to know that they will know, be able to get the root cause should it fail.
0: Like when I've done design work, when we're designing something for the cattle industry, it's got a clear cut goal. It's got to fit on this piece of property. You've got to incorporate the existing livestock scale into it. You can't go over the property line and handle this amount of cattle with this amount of people. It's got a definite goal where on a satellite work, it's very specific. It's got a launch this satellite off of this rocket and do it super reliable. Right. And then we we'll right. leave it up to you to design that. Right. Yeah, you because know, the thing I found, you know, I found a lot of stuff that uh, people get very big goals about stuff, okay, like wind may be the most efficient power, but then you have a client that says, I've got this satellite, I gotta get it out of this rocket. Okay, they give me a really, really clear thing And I found a lot of my projects, people say, well, how'd you get a lot done? Because I did targeted projects one step at a time and they had a ton of constraints. And I had to do my visual thinking within those constraints. Uh, With concrete and steel and some ordinary materials, I couldn't go make it out of titanium. Maybe that'd be nice, but it wouldn't be within the cost. (laughs) No, That, that was a constraint. And sometimes you get more stuff done when you take a piece of something, okay, you're really interested in a lot of environmental things, and let's take a piece that would be like a satellite and a rocket piece, if you can put your head around and actually
1: do it. Walter Holmans has made significant contributions to the aerospace industry with his extremely reliable satellite separation systems and his industry consulting. But it's hard to talk about this industry without thinking of Elon Musk, entrepreneur and founder of SpaceX. As Holmans was rising up in his field, Musk started breaking into the aerospace business in a big and bold way in 2002. Over the next several years. He said he was going to build rockets better, faster, and cheaper than anyone else. And there was a lot of skepticism about his goal within the industry. Holmans was among the skeptics, but he now admits he was wrong. He says Musk has cut the price to orbit between one-third and one-tenth.
2: So uh, he's realized at least a 60% reduction in costs. And uh, they every reason to believe they'll continue that downward cost, which is, of course, driving its competitors out of business, because when, when their competitors wrote their business plan, they were operating on the assumption that the price to orbit would remain static, and, and it hasn't. And, and I suspect he uses that as a leverage to rule the world. What I think he did is he, 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 him and his team started off saying that we want to make you know, better, faster, cheaper space systems. And as opposed to we want to be a government contractor. So uh, being a government contractor is a great way of running a business. You don't have any external liabilities. Like you don't have to succeed because you write the contract. So it's a best effort basis. If it doesn't work out or if the costs escalate, it's, it gets passed on to the, to the government. And the government was in the habit of, of working that way where the government would come along and say, these, these are the specific requirements of what we need. We want to go to the moon, for example. Well, here's a very good example, given the mission. When they launched up to the space station, the, they put the astronauts in first and then they loaded up the propellants, which if they explode, will kill everybody. And NASA was like, no, 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 no. And, and SpaceX was like, yes, and we are doing it because we think it's safe, and because it reduces the cost of the work. And so they did what, def- what a government contractor wouldn't do, which is to reduce their capacity to generate revenue from an unnecessarily complex solution. The, the assumption in my example is that NASA is wrong and, and SpaceX is right. SpaceX rockets have blown up on the pad.
0: Oh, I know they have. I've seen other
2: they solved the specific root cause for the last explosion, but who knows what other causes may cause another explosion. But nevertheless, they got NASA to do it their way. And the Apollo program, after you know, 30 seconds of flight, they throw away the abort system because it's no longer useful to get rid of the weight. And so they have rockets on top of rockets to get, a, to get rid of a rocket. And that's getting pretty complicated pretty quick. Well, well, the SpaceX folks saw that as like, well, it's something we need rarely, that always burdens us with a lot of mass and complexity. And we're already good at rocket engines, let's just use other rocket engines, and that's what they did. These, these Super Draco rocket engines that they have, that would, they verified uh, that they can make those work in a, in a test flight, and, and they're much more compact and don't require an in-flight ejection of, of hardware not to be uh, recovered, so they cut their costs and they cut their complexity. And uh, again, that was a very non-traditional response to to the requirement to make the astronauts safe. And they convinced NASA and everybody else that that would work. It took them a lot of work to make that happen, Uh, but they pushed through with that one as well. SpaceX has rejected the model of government support contractor and told everybody either overtly or, or otherwise that their mission statement was to lower costs, and to open up exploration through that development. Because they were driven by that, they had no interest in, in getting rich on, on government money. And because of that, their competitors, t- to some degree, were still stuck in, in relatively older habits there. The other companies have quarterly profits to report and so on. Um, apparently, SpaceX's investors are much more generous with a uh, generation of profits uh, from their work.
0: Okay, well, thank um, you so much. It's been course. really interesting uh, talking to you. Thank you so uh, much for uh, meeting with us. Really, really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, um, and the same goes for you, Temple. Uh, it's, it's been a real treat.
1: That was Engineer Walter Holmans speaking with Temple Grandin. Thanks to Jolene Bailey and Rosalie Winard for production assistance on this episode of How'd You Think of That? I'm Sherry Quinn. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is based upon work supported by the National Science
0: Foundation under grant number 1745674.